welcome back to The Professor and the Hack. This is episode 114. Welcome back to The Professor, PVO. How are you, Pete? Good to talk to you, Hugh. It's been a while. You know, I mean, we've had so many other things on, you, me, even a, a little brief period of time off in between all of that. But we've come back in a good week because, you know, obviously we're going to talk about the budget just handed down the other day. You know, Anthony Albanese doing a reply, not that anyone really cares as much about that. And mostly because everything's going to get overshadowed next week where we all expect the election to be called. So this isn't just a, a, a run-of-the-mill budget. It's an election year budget, and they hope that they can do what they did last time three years ago where they used it as, if you like, the kickstart to their campaign. But I think it's even tougher this time. What do you think? Well, he's given him, that is, Josh Frydenberg, has handed a baton off to Scott Morrison that enables him to sell something which is pretty attractive. So what Scott Morrison gets to see is, look, you're all in a job. I'm giving you cash. And here's some cheap petrol. That's a pretty simple message to sell. It is, but and you know, no doubt that's the politics of it, and, and that's why, as you say, it, it's got a lot of positives for them to be able to use as a campaign tool to help them get re-elected. My worry, though, is that it doesn't do all the things that need to happen. The medicine that the patient doesn't like, i.e. voters, but is necessary so that they can continue to live a happy and long life. So there's not the kind of reforms that need to be there. Or I would also argue a brand of fiscal repair either. That's not there. So plainly, this budget has been crafted in the light of some very positive news since December when there was the last, what they call MyEFO, the budget update that came through. And that reflects those commodity prices coming in. It's also the payments that aren't going out in welfare as employment improves. So money has been pouring into Josh Frydenberg's pockets. Has he done wise things with that windfall? Well, no, I don't think he has. And, and, and that's part of the issue. I mean, look at, by the way, the Stockholm syndrome that, that we're suffering, if you like, courtesy of just becoming used to having large deficits in however long it's been now, because you're dead right, Hugh. It's a, I think they're calling it a $100 billion improvement in the budget bottom line across the four years of forward estimates. However, uh, it's still a $78 billion deficit. And four years from now, in the out year of the budget forecast, I think it's still around about a $40 billion deficit. And all of that is happening without what we would normally regard as the kind of repair work that should be happening. This is I think a key point, and there hasn't been a lot of discussion on this. During the pandemic, in the early days of it, Josh Frydenberg made it clear that when unemployment got back down to 6%, he would start budget repair. When it got to 6%, he reframed that and he said, well, actually, I'll do it when it gets to 5%. It's now 4%, Hugh. It's 4% and nothing is happening. I mean, one of the things about government spending, perhaps the most useful way to judge it, is as a proportion of GDP, and there's a handy little table that comes in the budget numbers. And if you look at that table, it shows that the Frydenberg-Morrison government is the biggest spending government in the records that they give you going back to 1970. So fair enough, as a proportion of GDP, the spending in this financial year due to the pandemic was 31.6% of GDP. It is still holding up at 27.8, 27.2, 27.1, 26.6. The reason I give all those numbers going out to 2027-28 is that all of those spending figures as a proportion of GDP are higher than the worst, the biggest spending under Swan and Rudd at the time of the GFC. So the notion of a small government coalition kind of budgetary management 
is bollocks, isn't it? It's, it's rubbish. And this is part of the need to have a proper intellectual national debate about what we want from government. Because now that the Liberals are doing this, you've got both sides of politics having higher spending to GDP than what the tax to GDP is, which obviously is the whole reason that there's a deficit, essentially. Now, because they've embraced the spending side of things, and by the way, most people think there needs to be even more spending because you look at what needs to go into aged care, disability, the idea that childcare, for example, needs to be more universal and financially accessible than it is. There are so many things that people want government to do in the modern society that we live and we think welfare spending is, is too low in terms of you know, what people get on Newstart, for example. So people want more spending and more from government, but we're still fixated on this idea that the tax-to-GDP ratio has to stay at around a certain figure. Josh Frydenberg even talked about it in his National Press Club address. Well, guess what? It's time to recognise that if you want government to do more, like it or not, you're going to have to tax more. Otherwise, you are running inevitable deficits all the way out over the horizon, where a day of reckoning will have to one day come. And we need to address this reality. And I think that the zeitgeist, as well as the modern political culture of how we feel as a community, is that we want more from government, not less, which means, like it or not, we have to work out how to then tax more to make that happen. And this is important. It's not just a case of putting taxes up, although that will have to happen. It's putting taxes up efficiently, and that's where tax reform comes back into the mix. But again, no one wants to do the heavy lifting of tax reform. It makes it particularly difficult for Labor, though, doesn't it? Because uh, let's just imagine that perhaps they win the next election. And if they were to confront the very issues that you describe, they are going to have to find ways to put up tax, and that walks straight into the trap. Exactly, and that's the problem, right? That's pure politics, and if that happens, which I think is almost inevitable, assuming Labor wins, that the coalition will start attacking them for putting up taxes, that's just political superficiality that needs to be called out by everyone and hard. Now, that won't happen, of course, but it should happen. It has to happen because you can't embrace higher spending without embracing higher taxes. I mean, let's, sorry to interrupt you there, let's look at some of the quality of the spend. We now know that there's about $20 billion, a little more than that, that was essentially the price Barnaby Joyce extracted for agreeing to a net zero emission deal that Scott Morrison could take off to Glasgow. $20 billion of it, most of it has no justification according to the independent arbiters of where infrastructure should be spent. That surely has got to end. If we're talking about making big decisions about the future of the country, these sorts of monster boondoggles, much of it going out to the regions to appease the National Party, uh, surely that shouldn't be part of our future. I think you're right, but I guess my point is that spending has to go up anyway. Even if they fix that, they still have to put it up on all the things where we do need more money to be spent. And one of those might, frankly, from a Hawke perspective, be defence, given the you know increasingly volatile international world that we're in. But just like the need for tax reform and better spending priorities, as per the example you used, Hugh, you have to have that same diligent focus when it comes to defence spending. You know, make sure it's been wisely spent rather than badly spent, because it is so expensive, defence procurement, as you well know. So I think... That sort of fat in the budget or pork barreling in the budget absolutely needs to go. But even if we get all of that right and even if we embrace tax reform and even if we find a way to somehow keep downward pressure on defence spending in a volatile world, spending still has to go up. 
because of what people want from government, which means taxes do too, which means we need tax reform. But none of these debates are being had in this country anymore. I don't know that the political class is up to it. I don't know that the modern media is up to it either. And, and frankly, when we look at voters in the age of social media, I'm not sure they are either. It's funny because one of the things Josh Frydenberg has said in his uh, budget night speech was that the NDIS will always be fully funded under the coalition. That itself was a kind of a fiscal trap because the NDIS is costing, the, the, the cost of it is going up by over 10% per year. As some said when it was introduced, the notion that it was going to be somehow rather revenue neutral because of the productivity gains was always a fantasy. For all the value and the worth of an NDIS, it's extraordinarily expensive. And then you mentioned defence. We're going to have to spend an enormous amount more in defence, if not because submarines, the big AUKUS deal that Scott Morrison struck and was accused of lying and all the rest of it, doesn't feature in this budget at all. There's not a dollar for the submarines. Uh, you know, there's some money towards building bases, etc., in readiness for them. But for the submarines themselves, they don't even feature. So those massive structural costs, before we do anything else in there, just to, I suppose, reinforce your point. Yeah, and that's why a real debate about government priorities, community expectations of government, and then assuming I'm right that they are higher than they once were. We live in a more socially liberal society than what we did in decades gone by. We want more from our government to then embrace the reality that, well, guess what? That means you have to tax more, but you can't just do it in a rudimentary way by putting on another income tax bracket or putting up income taxes or just putting up the GST in and of itself or putting up the corporate tax rate, which could drive investment offshore rather than keeping it onshore and have a counter effect. You need to have a proper discussion about the way that the tax system gets restructured. And, and experts tell us this. The economists have been banging on about this for years, and the problem is getting more acute, not going away. One of the things that builds into the reform side of the agenda is the school system. So Gonski came up with a plan. It was never enacted in full, in part because it meant um, reducing in relative terms the amount of money that goes to wealthy private schools to get them to places where the need was greater. And that was politically untenable. It still remains uh, the best possible way we've got for lifting overall the quality of education in Australia, which has been lagging by international measures. Uh, and it's a potential saving if they put it into place. But as Mark Latham found out back in the day, immediately you're into class war language. Immediately you, you try to do property reform around tax, which they tried last time. Class war language again. If you're going to tax people, the logical place to go is to tax people who are richer. Class war again. So it's not going to come from the coalition. It's very difficult for it to happen from Labor, surely. And that's before, Hugh, we even get to uh, superannuation reform. Now, they've done it a little bit, which was hard enough to get in place the 15% tax, you know, that kicks in at a certain point. But you, you're, you're untaxed as a couple on super up to, I think, about $3.4 million as a couple. And then after that, anything beyond that that you have in super, you only get 15% tax. Now, stop and think about how insane that is in an ageing population where your baby boomer as a cohort is a larger voting cohort and a larger demographic bubble than other bubbles in the post-war baby boomer era. They're all hitting retirement age now. They have hit retirement age, many of them. And this is a group which is cashed up by and large, but paying no tax on what they have. And I'm not talking about taxing the principal. 
a lot of people don't actually even realize this is how it works. If you've got $3.4 million as a couple in super, you then earn, you know, minimum 5% on that if you just have it in bank stocks and live off the dividends. We are then talking about the couple who has $3.4 million in super getting an untaxed annual $170,000 allowance. That's after tax to live on. And anything that they get above that on their 5% return on 3.4, they only pay 15 cents in the dollar tax on. That is just not sustainable or fair when you consider that, you know, a couple trying to save for a home deposit and pay down a mortgage, particularly if interest rates go up. It is just not sustainable nor fair. And I'm talking against my own self-interest here because I'm ticking closer to the age where that'll be all relevant for me. But they need, in the bigger picture sense, to reform it before I get a chance to take my advantage of that system because it, it is unsustainable. But as you say, the politics of doing so is hard because you can just imagine the grey army warring against this politically alongside, as you say, the class war uh, that can happen when it comes to schools funding. It's a diabolical political mix, but it is necessary to have the reform debates somehow. So what's your sense of the Labour Party then? If they were to get into government, do you think that they would be a bunch in a hurry? In other words, are they going to be people who are just going to focus on not offending more people than they absolutely have to and stay there for a long time? Or is it in Albanese's belly to go into the fight and in a first term try to make enormous, scrappy, difficult reforms, but at least say that they, you know, on some level, save the country? My gut feeling is that he will do what interests him ideologically, which is to deal with the inequality in Australia, but he won't deal with it by also having a tight fiscal agenda to do so. So in other words, I think that debt will go up uh, as he addresses these issues. He'll curb some of the spending that's the pork barrel side of spending, but then he will do a lot of spending to try to address inequality, but it will be with more debt, not with tax reforms and, you know, adjustments to make it more fiscally sustainable. And he'll get away with that to some extent, or he should, because the coalition have, you know, lost any right to calling themselves fiscally prudent. So I think that's how he'll do it. Whereas if you arc back to the old days, you know, the Labor right, if you like, uh, would have been trying to make sure that, yes, we want to do all these spending initiatives, but we have to find a way to pay for them. So here's what we also have to do vis-a-vis microeconomic reform, for example. That half of it, I think, will be missing in this Labor government, which just means that people can applaud them for addressing inequality, but economists can quite rightly condemn them for not making it a sustainable addressing of inequality. initial gut sense as to whether this budget, Peter, is going to lift the coalition? I think it'll give them a small lift, but whether it is a springboard lift such that they can then continue to improve after that and win the election is is a different matter. So three years ago, they were down 54-46 ahead of the budget, so eight points behind in the two-party vote. The budget halved that to four points. So they went from a 54-46 deficit obviously them on the 46 side, to 52-48. And then Morrison called the campaign and inverted 52-48 to a lead of 51-49. So, you know, another turnaround. This time, they start behind by 10 points, 55 to 45. They might narrow it by the same four-point margin, 
but this time that would leave them still trailing 53-47. I don't know that they then get the springboard effect in the campaign that they got last time to invert those numbers. But some coalition people, Hugh, tell us that they don't need to invert those numbers. They can win this in the key marginal seats with as little as 485 or 49% of a vote. It's happened before Kim Beasley lost an election, even though he had 51.1% of the vote in 1998. He still lost the election. So that's a long-winded way, Hugh, of saying, I think they will get a bounce from the budget, but I don't know that it will keep on bouncing all the way through the campaign. Do you think Scott Morrison is still an asset? Oh, God, no. I think he's a, he's a dead weight around his own government, dragging it down. However, and I guess this is probably your point, he is meant to be the great campaigner, isn't he? So you, you assume that he will at least be somewhat dynamic on the campaign trail. But But I wonder whether that understanding of political campaigning that makes him good on the election trail will work this time because of you know, the stink attached to him. I, I do think that he is very smelly now uh, as a political leader. I mean, look at, we'll no doubt talk about this, Conchetta Ferravanti Wells teeing off on him the night of the budget uh, in a massive spray saying, I mean, she lost a pre-selection, she's bitter, I get it, but she still says he's unfit to be Prime Minister. And she's not Robinson Crusoe. That's part of the issue here. He's got Gladys Berejiklian saying he's a horrible person. He's got a cabinet minister saying he's a complete psycho. He's got a deputy prime minister saying that he's a fraud and a liar. And now he's got an outgoing senator saying he's unfit to be prime minister. This isn't one voice in the wilderness who might just be disgruntled, who you can dismiss. This is a group of people who have variously at times been his factional allies, not just Liberal Party fellow travellers or coalition fellow travellers. So... I think the public have caught on to the fact that there is a lot to dislike about Scott Morrison, but people vote with the selfish gene, don't they? So maybe the budget handouts and maybe fear of Labor is enough that they begrudgingly vote for Scott Morrison again, even if they don't like him. I think the polls will narrow, but I think there is a taint around Morrison and it's subtle, but it means that things that he says that might otherwise have been line ball or okay for him to say are now suddenly reframed as being terrible gaffes and evidence of his lack of empathy and so on. One example being the question that was put to him, I think, on one of the breakfast shows about that there's no money there for rental assistance. And he said, well, the best way to manage that is to help people get into their house. And of course, he's then going to spruik the guarantee that the government offers up to an increasing number of people. If they can't get the full deposit to get into a house, the government will guarantee the balance there. And that's immediately reframed as can't afford your rent? Well, just buy a house, which sounds terrible, is terrible, and makes them sound privileged and entitled. And it's funny, isn't it, Hugh? Because it's, um, his point is of itself an understandable one to make. And the way he worded it wasn't as bad as the subsequent headline. And it's also just a classic case of him trying to pivot to a strength because the truth is they haven't done anything for renters directly in the budget. So the way that you answer it is to say, well, hang on, you know, we're helping people who rent, you know, when they can get into a home that they can own for themselves. Now, exactly as you say, if a leader is traveling well or has higher likability ratings, that gets interpreted as being given a leg up. Whereas when a leader is starting to be on the nose and considered to be a little bit toxic, then that just gets interpreted the way that it was as him being elitist and out of touch. So that I think you are absolutely right that if you can't find a way somehow past that, that could become a problem. The only thing would be perhaps, because this happened to Howard, right, perhaps the sections of the media that really dislike Morrison, if they go too far with the dislike, 
then you can have people in the centre saying, well, hang on, I actually don't think he's as bad as you're claiming. That happened to Howard, and there's a possibility of that with Morrison, except I get the impression that people actually have doubts about Morrison. I mean, Howard was a gentleman, if you like. You know, like he played hard and he was ruthless and all the rest of it, but he didn't seem to have the, the same level of toxicity that, uh, that Scott Morrison does. He didn't have social media either, and I think uh, that has uh, changed the game in many ways. Now, look, one thing that is really the key good news in the budget, almost irrelevant, well, it's not irrelevant, but it's, uh, it's not a product of the budget, is the unemployment rate, which is forecast to go down to 3.75% and then stay low, be sustained low. And this is fundamentally great news for Australians. There's no question about that. But it's, it's not a, a line item there to do with spending by the government or taxing, but it's really important in the budget, and it's something that business is determined to put in there, is migration. And there is a number in there for the net overseas migration. And there was this loss of people out of Australia, 89,900 at the peak of the pandemic as people left the country and disappeared. So that was the country shrinking. But there is this forecast that there will be net migration of 180,000 coming in in the year 2022-23, rising to 213,000. These aren't tourists. These are people coming here to stay. Business wants it. It wants them to be skewed towards skilled labor coming in. Those two things don't add up, do they? We've got such low unemployment, essentially because the amount of competition from skilled labor coming in has disappeared thanks to the pandemic. That is going to reverse. It's there in the numbers. And yet we still have this, I would say, pretense that unemployment is going to stay as low in the later years. You know, that's in the budget. But I just don't believe it. Yeah, I'm similar to you on that one. It just stands to reason, doesn't it, that if you've got a couple of hundred thousand people arriving, obviously looking for jobs, and the more skilled they are, the more likely they are to be the ones who add to the employment numbers. But that's going to be, have to, it's either going to grow the economy or it's going to be at the expense of some people's jobs. Or, and this is the hidden aspect when we talk about employment numbers that the government doesn't want to talk about, as good as that unemployment figure is, and it's historically very good, underemployment is a huge issue in the Australian economy. There are lots of people working who want to work more. So part-time workers who want to be full-time workers, for example. And the unemployment rate just puts all of them in the same basket as employed. Well, there's a lot within that employed category who can't get more work that they would like for whatever reason, and they would like it. And that will also be exacerbated by more skilled migrants arriving. And the other factor, which is also not often talked about significantly enough, is the participation rate, because we only count unemployment out of the participation rate, and participation numbers are falling. So in other words, you have this large cohort of people who aren't even trying to find work. They're not even part of the participation numbers, which means that they don't get counted in the unemployment numbers. So there's a little bit of trickery when it comes to how unemployment gets calculated in this country, when you dig a little deeper, there's, there are actually some pretty significant problems there. It may feed into the consumer confidence numbers, which are so low. And that's curious. Business confidence is very high. Consumers, it's the lowest level of consumer confidence in Australia this close to an election since 1990, according to the Financial Review. Interestingly enough, look back at 1990, there was Bob Hawke. He was being dragged down by people internally, Paul Keating and those around him, but he did get up and win 
he didn't win the popular vote. But their marginal seat campaign was enough to get them up across the line in 1990. History repeating? Well, potentially, but what was harder then, well, sorry, what was easier then, I should say, than now, is the 87 election that he won against John Howard. He won it with a comfortable amount of seats, such that he then lost a lot of seats, particularly in Andrew Peacock's home state of Victoria in 1990. As you say, one with fractionally less than 50% of the two-party vote, but did it in the key seats that mattered. But he could afford to sacrifice some seats on the way and win other marginal seat campaigns and scrape home with a majority against Andrew Peacock. This time, Scott Morrison has no margin for error. He has to hold every seat, and if he starts losing seats, he loses his majority. And if he doesn't pick up Labor seats, well, then they're going to get there. I mean, they start on 69 uh, with the redistribution And I think Labor only needs to get to 72 or 73 to be able to cobble together a minority government. And, you know, pretty hard for Scott Morrison to stop them winning three or four seats net at an election. That that was harder than Hawke in 1990. But it's not impossible, and and they are analogous. It's a bit like 98, isn't it? Although that's less analogous than your example of 1990, because in 98, Howard won with a lot less of the two-party vote than Kim Beasley but had a relatively comfortable majority. But that's because he had those 96 numbers where he had like a 46-seat majority or something going into the 98 election. So he had so many excess seats that you know it was easier for him to therefore do badly but still win ugly. He won ugly. He won ugly again and again. That was the thing about John Howard. Uh, look, it's difficult to be a leader, but there's no leader in the world who's facing more difficulties than Volodymyr Zelensky. The Ukrainian president who's having multiple attempts on his own life, quite apart from a monumental attempt on his country. He's going to be speaking as we're talking to each other. We haven't heard his what he has to say. He's going to thank Australia for the support we've given him and the Ukrainian people. That includes $75 million or thereabouts in terms of uh, military and other aid. I'm told from defence sources among the aid we've been giving them is uh, Javelin anti-tank weapons, and these have been very useful, very valuable in combating the overwhelming Russian armour advantage. Could we do more? Should we do more? What could we do more? Yeah, this one is, for me, very, very vexing because on the one hand, I understand why doing more is incredibly risky because you potentially incite World War III. You know, China comes in somehow on Russia's side. You know, the the West kicks NATO into action, even though Ukraine's not officially a NATO state. And this thing just goes well beyond the Ukraine borders as a fight. Maybe not all the way to us, but certainly into Europe. And who knows after that, depending on what China does or doesn't do. So I understand if you like the pacifist view, which is that, yep, we're sending some weapons. That's pretty significant of itself. We send money, we offer moral support, and we impose very harsh sanctions. So I get that strategy because you don't want this war to widen. But I also just fundamentally believe that if a country is a democracy, a 40 million person democracy, and they get invaded by another country that is authoritarian, how the hell can the rest of the democratic world, notwithstanding sanctions and sending missiles or whatever it might be, sending anti-tank weaponry, how can we sit by and not engage and not get involved? I mean, you, you either stand up for democracy or you don't. This isn't a civil war. And to some extent, that's what we're doing here, isn't it? We're treating it like a civil war because it used to all be part of the USSR. 
we're sort of saying, well, it's a bit different. You know, they haven't invaded Canada. They haven't invaded Germany. Ukraine's almost not a country is the way that the unsaid component of this seems to kick into gear. I'm torn between the two because I can pragmatically see why you don't want to widen the war and you're going to make a bad situation worse if we do try to do more. But I don't like us not being more involved because I feel like that could be any democracy getting obliterated by a bigger, more powerful authoritarian regime. And what, the rest of the world just sits around and does sanctions and sends some weapons? That's not good enough either. Yes, for mine, uh, Ukraine is emphatically a country and deserves all support that we can do. Plainly, they're not going to be American boots on the ground. NATO doesn't want to put people on the ground, or at least for it to be seen to do it. I'd be very surprised if there are not some special forces types in there doing something useful for the Ukrainians. But um, yeah, losing Ukraine is a disaster for everyone. No man is an island in this particular case. But we'll see what he has to say. PVO, great to talk to you. We'll try to uh, get a couple of these out a week as we go up to the election. It is a fantastic moment in Australian history, or fascinating, I should say. (laughs) And, uh, And we'll go with you on the journey. Is now the time, Hugh, that I say uh, there's no way Scott Morrison can win this election and I'm happy to wear it as a badge of shame if he does? Well, whatever you say will be played back to you no matter uh, who wins. (laughs) Good to talk to you, PVA. Likewise, Hugh. You have been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.